Thank you very much, Sophies. Uh, it's always difficult. <coughs> you used quite uh, forceful words. We're glad, expert. I don't know if I can uh, manage uh, to uh, live up to the expectations. Even worse, I didn't know I was the first uh, speaker of this year. Um, hopefully, I'll bring luck. Um, so first of all, I'd also like to uh, thank uh, the uh, conveners, Patricia and Sotiris, uh, for inviting me uh, here, <coughs> especially because uh, Sotiris called me uh, during the holidays uh, burning with uh, fever. He mumbled something about the discussion group. I don't know if he was inviting me or suggesting if I knew somebody, but I invited myself. Uh, I don't know if that's good or not. <laughs> uh, but thank you very much for the invitation. Um, as you can see from my uh, surname, Mercurius, if you've ever had any dealings with Greeks, uh, you'll figure out that I'm Greek and I'm a proud member of the unofficially named Greek Mafia. Uh, the, the goatee is an indication. Um, so the topic for today uh, is uh, interpretation uh, of customer international law. Um, so what we're going to be, uh, what I'm going to be uh, talking about today is basically whether uh, we have rules of interpretation of customer international law the same way we have rules of interpretation with respect to uh, treaties. And the idea is uh, to kind of examine uh, whether it is possible uh, to have such rules for customer international law, and uh, if so, uh, why <coughs> there isn't much literature and discussion about it and we still focus mostly on state practice and opinion jurors. And the hypothesis here is that we're basically uh, disregarding, we're focusing on state practice and opinion jurors, uh, and uh, we don't grasp customer international law uh, in all its complexity and in all of its permutations. And we're basically stumbling uh, in the dark with respect to customer international law. Um, now, that might be uh, an apt analogy, the stumbling uh, into dark, uh, but two authors have uh, said it better, uh, Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, and the book Good Omens has nothing to do with law, which is great. Um, it is a darkly humorous book, which I highly recommend. And basically, to give you a little bit of context, uh, this is basically uh, Armageddon is coming, uh, the apocalypse is coming, uh, things go a little bit... Uh, Awry, uh, and there's a discussion between uh, a demon and an angel about the, uh, the plan of God for humanity. And I think that that description is basically applies also to uh, when we deal with rules in international law, but we have no idea how they work. So the quote is, and I paraphrase it a little bit, it's like playing an ineffable game of the judge's or interpreter's own devising, which might be compared from the perspective of any of the other players to being involved in an obscure and complex version of poker in a pitch-dark room with blank cards for infinite stakes with a dealer who won't tell you the rules and who smiles all the time. So that is kind of the feeling that I, and I don't know, I think some of our uh, other colleagues also have when we deal uh, with interpretation and with the sources of international law. So basically what we're going to be looking at is, first of all, why is interpretation uh, so important? Uh, and here I'm going to be absolutely Greek. Everything started from Greece. So I'm going to give you some examples from ancient Greece. I apologize for that, but bear with me. Um, then we're going to examine if, uh, from a theoretical and logical perspective, whether interpretation of customer international law is possible. And then we're going to try and see uh, whether there are some rules that exist, some analysis that has occurred 
in judgments of international courts and tribunals. So first things first, um, <coughs> as I said, uh, I now teach at the University of Groningen, which is in the Netherlands. So uh, Netherlands are famous for many things, one of them also, unfortunately, coffee shops. Um, as you can see, the lady uh, on the screen is Pythia. She was an oracle at the Delphi. Uh, according to legend, she would sit on a tripod. They would burn some herbs underneath and smoke would come. Yes, exactly. Quotation marks. Um, some smoke would come up and she would come with an oracle. Basically, she would mumble uh, gibberish, and those men that you see standing behind would write it down and explain uh, what she was saying. So according to legend, basically, uh, uh, at one point, uh, a prince went to, uh, wanted to go to war but didn't know whether uh, he would uh, be victorious or he would die. So she came up with the uh, oracle, Ixis afixis ukendopolem of Nixis. Now, this sounds much better uh, uh, in ancient Greek, but the rough, rough translation is, you shall go and you shall return never, you shall perish in the war. Now, depending on where you put a comma, that has two very different meanings. Now, the prince was a, an optimist by nature, so he said, woohoo, you shall go and you shall return, comma, never you shall perish in the war. So he decided to go to war, and ended up dying. The reason is because the comma should have been somewhere else. You shall go and you shall return never, comma, you shall perish in the war. Um, and what makes it even worse is that in ancient Greek you had no commas. Everything was in capitals, so that was a big problem. So you see, interpretation is a matter of life and death from ancient times. Um, if you go with respect to etymology, if you want to look at what interpretation means, the, the Greek word hermeneutic, where hermeneutics comes from, comes from Hermes, who was the go-between. Uh, he was a fantastic uh, deity. Uh, he was the protector of thieves, merchants, fantastic job to have, but also was uh, the go-between. So he basically took the souls to the Netherlands, but he was also the messenger of gods to men. And this is the idea of interpretation bring the message or the, the intention of the parties to uh, the rest of the world. The same thing with interpretation. Uh, inter and prath, a Sanskrit version, uh, basically meaning go between. Again, this is the idea of trying having a document or having a rule and trying to glean the true intention of the parties, the true meaning, and then transfer that meaning to uh, everybody else who's interested. Now, again... Fear the Greeks and the Romans, because there are some examples with the Romans, even when they bear gifts. So some examples from ancient times. Uh, Cleomenes concluded a truce with the people of Argos that was supposed to last some days. The result was he attacked during the night. Not a very nice person. Uh, with Romans, Fabius Labeo uh, promised to Antiochus that uh, he would return half of his fleet, but because Rome was worried that Antiochus would become a huge power in the area, they didn't want him to have any naval fleet whatsoever. So what they did, they did return half, but they sold all the ships in half, so everything sank. Locrians made a, a pact that said that as long as we stand on this ground, we will not attack you. What they did was, on their shoes, they put other uh, uh, some sand from their own country, they took it out, and then they attacked. So there are a number of examples of perfidious interpretation. This is called perfidious interpretation. Now, 
at that time, you had no rules. Now, of course, you're going to ask that today, that although we say we have some rules, perfidious interpretations sometimes still exist. Nonetheless, such blatant constructions of the rules have at least a decree subsided. The problem, however, is that with respect to interpretation, yes, we have interpretation of treaties. We're talking about customary international law and the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, Articles 31, 32, and 33. Everybody accepts that. In all judgments of international courts and tribunals, they pay lip service. Articles 31 to 33 are customary international law, and then they move on. The same thing, uh, same discussion has happened with respect to interpretation of acts of international organizations. They say that pretty much the same rules, mutatis mutandis, uh, would apply. The same thing again with respect to unilateral acts or statements of states. You had the nuclear test case and also various reports by the ILC with Special Rapporteur Sedeño, who discussed this idea of interpretation of unilateral acts. So you see various acts, not just treaties, we have accepted the possibility of interpretation. The problem, however, is with customary international law. That's why I have the X question mark and a tick. There has been almost no discussion with respect to interpretation of customary international law. Every time when we talk about customary international law, we tend to think immediately in terms of uh, state practice and opinion juris. And this increasingly has become a little bit uh, uh, interesting and bizarre in the sense that there has been an ongoing discussion uh, in the last few decades with respect to customary international law. And international law seems to be going uh, a process similar to mathematics in the 18th century, where we're going back to the basics, trying to find on what axioms it is based, what makes the system work or not work. Um, so you had the ILA uh, discussing uh, customer international law for nearly 17 years. Uh, the ILC now has uh, two projects which are focused on interpretation. The treaties over time, and uh, or has been named now, subsequent agreements and practice in relation to treaty interpretation with Nolte as special rapporteur. Of course, Sir Michael Wood, again, with respect to customer international law, formation and evidence of customer international law, which has now been named identification of customer international law. And the study group, I, I plugged my own study group, uh, my own, no, I'm a co-operator there, uh, which has now been established with respect to content and evolution of rules of interpretation, which the idea is to discuss the rules of interpretation across all possible sources of international law. So there is a discussion going on. Now, if you go through the literature with respect to customer international law, either the issue is ignored, so there's only reference to state practice and opinion juris, or you see various arguments being made against it. Um, these arguments basically boil down to three main groups. First of all, it is because it is. You don't interpret it because you don't, you can't interpret customer international law. Full stop and move on to the next topic. Very, very limited analysis. The other point is that uh, customer international law cannot be interpreted because it is a vague rule, an extremely vague rule and an unwritten rule to that effect as well. And the third group is that no international courts or tribunal has ever interpreted customer international law. So basically, uh, we'll go through each of these arguments and try and see whether we can disprove them or not. 
So the first one, it is because it is. Now, this is based on the understanding that you have state practice and opinion juris, and this inductively leads to uh, customer international law. I'll be using uh, some terms, induction, deduction. Uh, there have been some recent articles by Professor Talmon on this topic. We'll come back to that. Now, the, the problem with this one is that it is because it is. Well, this is basically axiomatic. You can't interpret customer international law because you can't, okay? So I simply reply, yes, you can because you can. Um, it leads nowhere. And this is the problem with an axiomatic statement. Uh, and it's basically um, an example of a Grippus trilemma. A Grippus trilemma was that basically you can never reach uh, absolute knowledge of a particular uh, fact uh, because of three things. Either uh, you end up with an axiom, which is something that you cannot prove. It is an axiom. Uh, or you lead to, to uh, an absurd result, argumentum ad absurdum. Or you, lead, you end up uh, with uh, an infinite regression. So for that reason, basically, you cannot uh, ever have true knowledge. So this falls under the axiomatic. Now, the axiomatic is okay. You always have certain axioms which you need to accept in order uh, for any kind of system to work. But if, however, you can disprove that axiom, then that means that it is not axiomatic. It is a pseudo-axiom. So that is the point, and that is the point that we're going to do in the next two groups, and especially with international courts and tribunals. We will demonstrate that this has happened in international jurisprudence. Therefore, you cannot simply set aside interpretation of customer international law simply as an axiom. And <laughs> it seems basically... Uh, that there is a lot of focus on state practice. And this axiomatic uh, argument basically is focused that customer international law, we always immediately uh, think in terms of practice and opinion juris. And this is basically uh, your mind being trained to see in particular patterns. Now, behind me, I have the famous, and now I digress, I go to psychology here, but bear with me a little bit. Uh, this is the famous uh, Luchin's water jug experiment. Uh, and what they did was, um, I presume most of you will have seen Die Hard, or not, go see it. Uh, so in Die Hard 3, uh, there is an example where, and it's a, a logical problem, where you have certain water jugs and you need to uh, combine them in a particular way in order to reach a certain quantity. Now, Luchin's, Luchin and Luchin, uh, basically what they did was took that kind of idea and tried to show how you easily the mind, the human mind, is trained to recognize patterns. Uh, and the idea of the problem here is uh, that basically you have A, B, and C, and you want to create desired quantity D. And if you try and do that, uh, uh, you'll see that certain of the test subjects actually go through the first five very quickly, but then start having problems after number six. The reason is because at the first five, your mind get trains, it gets trained into subtracting and adding in a particular way, which doesn't work for six and ten afterwards. And about 40% of the subjects there actually said that for some, there was no solution, where all of them actually have a solution. Even more so, sometimes there is an even easier solution where you simply subtract between two. But because your mind has been trained very quickly in just five examples, they go the long way around. 
taking the, la uh, the largest quantity, subtracting two, adding one, instead of simply subtracting one. So go through two or three motions instead of one. And this is very, very fast. I mean, everybody knows about the Pavlovian response with the bell and the dog salivating. Uh, this kind of puts, uh, puts us to shame because uh, Pavel, it took Pavlov several weeks to train the dogs. This is just five examples. In just one minute, your mind has been trained to recognize pattern, and it's very difficult to move from this pattern. And this has been an example, uh, main test subject. So chess, uh, chess pattern recognition has been used. This is an example. And the red uh, indications, uh, they put uh, a measurement device to show where the eye was going. And because chess players are trained to see particular patterns, the eye, you see a large collection of red towards one particular area whereas the actual solution is somewhere else. Again, it takes a lot of time to basically draw yourself away from this and find the proper solution. So this is called the Einstellung effect, and you see various uh, perturbations of this uh, in various psychological tests. Um, and my suggestion is that basically one of the main reasons that every, sometimes we go directly <laughs> practicing a years is because we've been trained from the first year, from the first class of public international law, when we hear customer international law, immediately to think in terms of practice and opinion euros. That's the only way we think of customer international law, uh, and then we move on. Whereas with treaties, we have a number of other variations that we take into account. Now, the second argument is that customer international law is very vague and unwritten. Now, this is a little bit inconsistent. Um, first of all, with respect to vague, okay, but that is exactly the point of interpretation because every term has a fringe or penumbra of uncertainty, as Hart said. That is the point of interpretation, to actually clarify that particular point. So if a rule is vague, that is actually the rule that needs most interpretation rather than actually rejecting the possibility of interpretation. The other way to see it is also that you end up with an absurd result. Let's say you have a customary international rule uh, which exists also in a treaty. Exact same rule under both the VCLT and customary international law. If you ask, can you interpret the VCLT rule? The answer is yes. Absolutely, yes. Can you interpret customer international law? No. Why? Isn't it the exact same rule? So you end up with a, a bizarre kind of uh, result. To add to that, consider what the, uh, what the process is. So if you have a customer international law rule, then if you always have to require an examination of state practice and opinion euros because you don't have interpretation, so your only possibility is state practice and opinion euros. Each and every time that you use a rule, you need to, have to establish state practice and opinion euros with all the problems that those two elements have. And you need to establish state practice and opinion euros with an extreme degree of specificity in order to apply it to a particular case. You, don't, you can't simply establish that a general rule exists you have to establish that the rule exists with that particular content that that particular case requires. 
Now, with respect to treaties, that doesn't exist. With treaties, you have a rule. If it's too general, you try and interpret it and see if it fits the case. But then the problem is that you criticize customary international law as being too vague, but then you require a degree of specificity that you don't require for, from the more precise treaty law. So again, this is a very bizarre uh, and illogical result. So from a matter of logic, it doesn't seem to compute. Now also, and this I'll go through very quickly, uh, this also does not take into account that uh, the continued existence of customary international law as a rule. If you always look at the state practice and opinion of you take just still images of the rule at vast intervals from one another. And this is, again, a problem that we see a lot in international law with respect to the continued existence of any rule, not just customary international law. Uh, and there are various uh, philosophical theories like endurantism, perjurantism, and exdurantism. Uh, but, again, the problem is that with treaties, we have kind of solved that with uh, evolutive interpretation. So if the parties want the treaty to evolve, you are allowed to evolutively interpret a particular provision which then moves away from endurantism and goes to perjurantism. With customary international law, again, if you focus on state practice and opinion juris, yes, theoretically, you accept the possibility of modification, but you're simply taking still pictures. You're stuck on endurantism. And again, you forget entirely the possibility that the parties, the states might have intended a general rule that could evolve. So <laughs> the... The idea is that basically if we accept the possibility of interpretation of customary international law, we fill uh, a gap that uh, exists. So with respect to treaties, you have the negotiation, the first stage, then you have the consent to be bound, expressed by the parties, ta-da, you have a treaty. Okay, there are some uh, uh, weird cases where you have minutes and the intention might not have been expressed so clearly, but again, that's the fridge. Um, and then when you want to apply the treaty in a particular case, Again, you have the treaty, and then you go through the process of interpretation, and you apply the particular provision. With customary international law, you have state practice and opinion juris, <coughs> which leads to the formation of customary international law. You have the rule, but then in order to apply it, there is something missing. And that's why I'm suggesting that that particular missing element is the element of interpretation. Once you have the rule, once a customer international rule has formed, it doesn't make sense afterwards not to, to again have to establish each and every time with a different content and not allow for interpretation of the customary rule. Now, at this point, um, I want to clarify a few points with respect to uh, some confusion. Um, because... In a lot of authors who don't negate the possibility of uh, interpretation of customary international law, um, you see passing references to interpretation of custom. Now, the problem there is that they don't always mean interpretation of customary international law. They mean interpretation of state practice, which might lead to the formation of customary international law. Now, these are two entirely different things. And keeping on with the practice of being an absolute Greek troll, again... Uh, another reference to uh, uh, paradox, an ancient Greek paradox. Uh, Heraclitus said that uh, no man can enter, uh, can enter the same river twice because he's both not the same man and the river is not the same river. Now, 
this has been uh, <coughs> debunked in various ways. Some say it's a pseudo-paradox. Uh, but basically, the idea is very similar to what happens with interpretation of customer international interpretation of state practice. In that paradox, as Wittgenstein said, um, you use the term same to mean two different things. And that's where the paradox, the conflict, emerges. You mean same, but you mean same temporally, same with respect to uh, the substance, or, again, going back to the ontological theories, are we talking about an object that remains the same despite the fact that certain of its attributes have changed? Now, with respect to interpretation and customer international law, interpretation of state practice, yes, we use the term interpretation of state practice, but that is, not, that is interpretation in the ordinary, everyday language. It's not interpretation in the legal sense with certain particular rules, certain particular elements that you can take into account. So interpretation of state practice is not interpretation in the sense of Article 3132. Uh, I know the VCLT applies only to treaties, but I'm using that as a kind of expression of the rules, legal rules of interpretation. So that it's more of an evaluation rather than actual proper interpretation. It's an evaluation of whether state practice is sufficient and if it is sufficient, then you look at the opinion juris and see if there is customary international law. On the other hand, interpretation of an existing, of an already formed customary international law rule, that I will try and demonstrate follows certain rules, very similar to the interpretation of treaties. So that's a distinction that needs to be made. So this means that the process ends up being state practice and opinion juris leads for an inductive process to customary international law. And once you have formed customary international law, no matter how vague it is or not, then in order to apply it in a particular case, you go through the deductive process of interpretation. And this uh, diagram actually explains the idea that the state practice and opinion juris basically you consult and at that point, you don't have a customary or you were examining if a customary international law rule exists. But after the rule has come into existence, then you go deductive process. <coughs> and this is also connected, as I mentioned, to Professor Talmon's uh, recent article with respect to uh, deduction, uh, induction, deduction, and assertion. Uh, in the International Court of Justice. And at the uh, Agile Talk blog, uh, there were quite a, uh, quite a fiery debate with respect to what this is. Now, Professor Talmon takes the, the, the idea that this is a methodological tool. Uh, my suggestion is that, yes, but the reason why there is a different methodology is because they refer to different stages of the life cycle of customer international law. The inductive process makes more sense, state practice and opinion juris, when you're trying to establish the existence, the formation of customary international law. The deductive process, on the other hand, makes much more sense when you have a vaguely constructed customary international law and you try and apply it, try and interpret it in order to apply it in a particular case. So these are the two different after the customary international law has come into existence. So... The difference in methodology of induction versus deduction seems to be uh, a, a result of the different stages with respect to customary international law that you're dealing with. And then the final thing is uh, whether, uh, whether uh, no international court has ever done so. And this is where 
lawyers and academics always have the most fun finding the cases that nobody else has seen or very few have seen uh, with respect to uh, an, a new possibility emerging. So first of all, I will not start with uh, cases. I will sta start with statutes. So the ICC statute, Article 21, which refers to applicable law, says the court may apply principles and rules of law as interpreted in its previous decisions. So from the wording itself, rules, any rules, not just treaty rules, customary international law, and principles are interpreted by the courts. The application and interpretation of law pursuant to this article must be consistent with internationally recognized human rights. So you see here, at least the wording uh, seems to indicate that you can interpret customary international law. Of course, the problem is that they never thought about this during the preparatory work. If you go through the preparatory work, uh, it's just uh, a normal way of saying things, interpretation and application. They didn't give it much thought. However, it is a textual argument. My personal favorite, however, is Article 36 of the PCIJ statute, also ICJ statute, um, which in the uh, form it has now, says nothing about interpretation of customary international law. It talks about the jurisdiction of the court in all legal disputes concerning the interpretation of a treaty, any question of international law. Of course, an argument here could be made, well, why do you change the wording? Uh, if customary international law could be interpreted, you should have interpretation there. Now, this is one of the few times that actually preparatory work helps quite a bit. Uh, if one goes through the preparatory work of the Advisory Committee of Jurists for the PCIJ, there was actually one uh, amendment proposed by uh, Mr. Ricky Busati, uh, who said, A, the interpretation or application of a treaty, B, the interpretation or application of a general rule of international law. And there was an extensive discussion on this particular point. According to Ricky Busati, the idea was that it makes sense. If, if we're going to talk about interpretation and application of treaties, why do we diverge? Is there a particular reason? Everybody agreed that it was absolutely correct. Everybody agreed that this amendment made much more sense. So why did they change it? The reason why they changed it is that the wording, any question of international law, existed in treaty, existed in the Covenant of the League of Nations, existed in previous treaties, and they said they wanted to show a continuity. Nonetheless, and that's the only reason, common usage, that they adopted this particular wording. Nonetheless, everybody was very specific and very explicit about this, that indeed any question of international law has a lot of problems and it made more sense, it reflected the reality of the situation if they had adopted any, uh, sorry, uh, the interpretation or application of a general rule. So they indeed acknowledged that this was the correct possibility, that customary international law could be interpreted. So that is with respect to the ICC statutes. Now let's go to the meaty topics of actual cases. Now, the easiest way to prove a hypothesis is try and find uh, a quote from an actual landmark case. So, uh, of course, everybody knows Nicaragua case. So, in the Nicaragua case, in paragraph 178, rules which are identical in treaty law and in customary international law are also distinguishable by reference to the methods of interpretation and application. 
So here it is accepted that you have methods of interpretation for both, but they are different. Make matters even more precise, the classical case that everybody quotes uh, in the exams that Antonius puts uh, with respect to customary international law, North Sea Continental Shelf case. So there, Judge Tanaka said, this task, in its nature being interpretative, would be incumbent upon the court. The method of logical and teleological interpretation can be applied in the case of customary law as in the case of written law. Very explicitly, that he thinks that the two rules, according to him, of interpretation of customary international law are the logical and teleological interpretation. Now, if you try and break these, what does Tanaka mean with logical and teleological? Um, First of all, the use of and probably means that these are two separate kind of schools of interpretation, that teleological is slightly different from logical. Um, I've given you an indicative list of actual cases where interpretation of customer international law has happened. Uh, <laughs> so Barcelona Traction, North Sea Continental Shelf, Tunisia, Libya, Nicaragua, nuclear weapons, EC Biotech case. EC Biotech case will return to that because it's my favorite case, uh, not because of what it decided, but because of the point that I'm trying to make. Um, but from all these cases, it seems that when Tanaka refers and what the courts tend to do with respect to logical interpretation basically means either a good faith interpretation but most likely what courts and tribunals tend to do is refer to other treaties or other rules. So this is an indication of a kind of systemic interpretation. And what courts and tribunals actually prefer when they interpret customary international law is to use codification treaties. When they use codification treaties, and sometimes they go a little bit too on the extreme with respect to that, uh, they think that everything is solved. They refer to the codification treaty, and then they start referring to the context of the treaty, the preparatory work, because they think <coughs> it's exactly the same. But this logical interpretation seems to refer to systemic interpretation. And teleological, okay, that is the, the classical, the, what is the object and purpose of that particular rule? <laughs> no. Um, as I said, there have been some uh, many cases, but the ones that I actually prefer, uh, because I also have a thing for uh, self-referential statements and paradoxes, uh, is when courts try and interpret the rules of interpretation. So they're trying to interpret the very customary rules of interpretation. Now, this is a little bit self-referential, but bear with me. So one example... Um, from the EC Biotech case is with respect to Article 31.3c of the BCLT. Article 31.3c of the BCLT says, which is also customer international law, let's not get into that, um, that together with the context, account can be taken of any relevant rules of international law applicable in the relations between the parties. Now, this is a wonderful provision, and the reason I'm saying it is that was the topic of my PhD. Um, but every single word has problems, but between the parties was the issue with respect to EC Biotech case. Now, the question was, what rules do you take into account? What does between the parties mean? Between the parties to the treaty or between the parties to the dispute? Depending on what interpretation you take of that rule, you can either apply, well, not apply, you can use for interpretative purposes a big number of treaties, 
or a very small number. If you have parties to the dispute, then in order to start the discussion, the treaty you're referring to for interpretive purposes needs to be signed and ratified by only those two parties to the dispute. However, if you talk about between parties to the treaty, then all the parties of the treaty you're interpreting needs, need to be parties to the treaty you're trying to refer to for interpretive purposes. Now, in bilateral treaties, that might be easy, but when you have multilateral treaties, WTO agreements, UNCLOS, then that becomes extremely difficult. In that case, most chances would be that that would not uh, happen, and you probably could refer only to customary international law. Now, in the EC Biotech case, the panel said in paragraph 768, this understanding of the term the parties leads logically to the view that the rules of international law to be taken into account are those which are applicable in the relations between the WTO members. So this was, and in the next paragraph, accordingly based on our interpretation of Article 313C. Now, notice, although they mentioned VCLT, they're not supposed to apply the VCLT because according to the DSU and also First of all, according to the DSU, they have to apply customary international law with respect to interpretation, but also even the parties in the EC Biotech case, European communities and the United States, not parties to the VCLT. So they couldn't be applying the VCLT. They had to be applying customary international law. So by that token, when they refer to interpretation of Article 313C, they don't mean interpretation of Article 313C VCLT. They mean interpretation of Article 313C customary international law. So Biotech gives an indication of a possibility of interpretation of customary international law. But that's not the only reason why I like the Biotech case. Now, the Biotech case was actually uh, used as an example um, of that 313C is solved. We go for the restrictive interpretation between parties to the treaty. Now, that is not what the case said, and this is an example of cherry-picking of paragraphs. Immediately afterwards, the, the, court, the, the panel says um, that the, in the present case, this seems to be what they're suggesting, but in the present case, uh, they didn't have to deal with uh, the treaties being invoked, weren't, wasn't a difference between parties to the dispute and parties to the treaty. There were simply treaties that had not been signed and ratified, so there were not even rules in the sense of 313C. And they said, it is only for this case that we take this interpretation. And actually, this was reversed later on in the EC large civil aircraft cases. In the more recent cases, in 2015, I think, one state about certain agricultural products. My uh, brain is failing me at this point. Uh, I don't remember which state it was. So 2015 case. Now, the even worse thing about the EC Biotech case is that it's basically, it basically goes against itself. So it says that we think that the proper interpretation is parties to the treaty. Okay. But then there is a problem because what they're doing is <coughs> try and follow on this one. Okay, it's a, it's a little bit, it took me about three years to figure it out. Um, so, they're applying customary international law. Are we agreed on this? It could be a little bit interactive. Um, so yes, I answer for you, yes. Now, 
in order to figure out whether it is parties to the dispute or parties to the treaty, what they did was they went to the VCLT and they looked at the context and the terms used in the VCLT. But the problem is that the VCLT, they used it interpretatively. Remember when they refer to codification treaties or other treaties, that is systemic interpretation. But systemic interpretation is 313C, any <laughs> relevant rules. So the codification treaty is a relevant rule for the purposes of interpreting. So when they refer to the VCLT, they're basically applying 313C. But then they end up at an absurd result because they conclude that the proper interpretation is parties to the treaty, so you can apply only a very limited amount of treaties, but then when interpreting customer international law, they apply to the VCLT that none of the parties were parties to. So in order to interpret customer international law, they applied the most expansive, not even the most expansive, it's basically be no parties to the treaty. So they went crazy. So in that case, basically, in order to come to a conclusion of X, they basically went through a process that started from, I accept that it is minus X. So that's why the EC Biotech case really doesn't make that much sense. Okay, I've, I've taken enough time with the EC Biotech case. Uh, that's not the only case. That, that is an example of systemic interpretation and where things, if, if there is no understanding of the rules and of the process, you might end up with a, with a decision that makes sense, but if you break it down, then you see the inconsistencies. Another example of interpreting the rules of interpretation of customer international law is, again, with respect to Article 32. Now, there are a number of cases. First of all, uh, Qatar, Bahrain, uh, where there was a discussion by Schwebel with respect to whether uh, preparatory work can have a corrective function. Again, here we're applying customer international law. And the court said, yes, we are applying customer international law, which is codified in Article 3132 BCLT. That is the classical statement that they make. So in Qatar, Bahrain, there was the, the problem of the meaning of the term uh, al-tarafan, uh, which could mean two things, uh, and it had to do with jurisdiction, uh, that <coughs> jurisdiction could be exercised, well, could be activated uh, by either one of the parties or both of the parties, which made all the difference, because it meant that whether if one state submitted a case, then immediately the court had jurisdiction, or whether both states had to agree. And the term was a little bit ambiguous. So Schwebel suggested that uh, even if there was one particular interpretation, if you went to the preparatory work, preparatory work can have a corrective function. Now, in Article 32 VCLT and customer international law, there's absolutely no reference to corrective interpretation. So if somebody is going to argue that, that is a matter of interpretation. And Schwebel does a very good job and basically in order to do that he uses the two rules of interpretation of customary international law systemic interpretation he uses codification treaties and teleological interpretation he uses the base the object and purpose of the rule because simply if the idea is to try and find the intention of the parties if there is a mistake in the treaty and the preparatory work can demonstrate 
what the actual intention of the parties was, clearly there is corrective. There is the possibility of corrective interpretation. There are other ways you can argue about that uh, uh, if the meaning is uh, ambiguous or uh, obscure or manifestly absurd. There are various ways to say that it falls into one of those two possibilities. But the point I'm trying to make here is, again, here we're talking about a rule which is established customary international law. Yes, you can refer to preparatory work. And then the question arises, can the preparatory work have a corrective function? There was very little, well, not even state practice. There was very little judicial practice on that matter. Nonetheless, Shebel suggested, yes, it makes sense that we can come to that conclusion by interpreting the customary international rule. Same thing with respect to the use of preparatory work against third states, states that had not participated in the preparatory work of that particular treaty. This was raised in the River Oda case. And again, there, Judge Ancelotti, in a dissenting opinion, uh, went through the process, and the court itself went through a process of logical and teleological interpretation, uh, but came to the conclusion that it could not. Ancelotti said, yes, it could, and that actually... Uh, was the position that was taken in later judgments. But again, it was not about state practice and opinion years. At no point did the courts deal with that. It was about how the rule functions, what makes sense for the rule, what is the logical content of the rule. And that was a process of interpretation. What was the telos of the rule? Same thing again with respect to judgments. Okay, Article 32, once again, can you... You can use other supplementary means. What are judicial decisions? What are they? They're not preparatory work, but can they be under other supplementary means? You could say yes or no. During the preparatory work, they, uh, what they said was that they left the list of uh, supplementary means to be determined by judges and lawyers. So it is open for interpretation. Again, you have cases there, and actually cases that have reached two different conclusions with respect to judicial decisions. So in the CCFT, uh, CFTA uh, versus US, they came to the conclusion that judicial decisions are other supplementary means, whereas in EC chicken classification, they came to the conclusion that uh, judicial decisions were circumstances of conclusion. Again, these are two different interpretations. You can argue whether they're right or wrong, but you cannot deny that there are interpretations, especially with respect to the CCFT versus US. The way that they ended up reaching the conclusion that judicial decisions are other supplementary means <coughs> was that they referred to the ICJ statute, and they referred to the fact that judicial uh, decisions are secondary source. And then they tried to make the connection that secondary is very similar to supplementary, and at the preparatory work of the VCLT, they also used, instead of supplementary, the term secondary, and that's why. That's why it makes sense. But again here, what they did was, in order to interpret the customary international law rule of Article 32, they referred to the VCLT, the preparatory work of the VCLT, and the ICJ statute. Again, they referred to uh, other relevant rules. Again, going for systemic interpretation. So basically, uh, and this is, again, this is a very, uh, the very start of, 
hopefully more research on this topic. Um, if we want to look at the, uh, the possible rules of interpretation, some basic idea. First of all, let's look at the three schools of interpretation that we have with respect to treaties. So you have the uh, intention of the parties, the textual interpretation, the teleological interpretation. So the intention of the parties might be a rule that can be useful with respect to interpretation of customer international law. The problem is that it will be very difficult to distinguish at that point whether you're establishing the intention of the parties or whether you're looking at state practice and opinion juris. At that point, because the passages of the court's decisions are not very clear, it would be very tricky to distinguish between those two. So intention of the parties seems to not be used so much as a tool for interpretation of customary international law for uh, the reasons that I mentioned. Textual interpretation is useful, but not as such, because customary international law is not written. However, you have the court's favorites, codification treaties. But there, textual interpretation basically becomes systemic interpretation. You refer to other relevant rules. And codification treaties, based on the uh, international court's judgments, seem to be uh, the most relevant. The codification treaty seems to be considered the most relevant rules for interpretation. And finally, the teleological interpretation. Uh, it has been used in numerous cases. What is the object and purpose? And most of the times, they don't just look at the object and purpose of that particular rule, but the object and purpose of an entire section of international law, human rights, international criminal law. And there, the systemic and teleological interpretation kind of overlap. So these... Uh, seem to be the basic uh, rules of interpretation. Of course, there's need uh, for much more research to flesh out the exact contours of each rule. Uh, but the point was to try and uh, stimulate a discussion with respect to uh, customary international law and that it's not so simple either it's uh, something that the judges assert uh, or that it is simply practice and opinion years, that maybe there's another way to look at it that once the customary international law rule has formed, you can talk about interpretation of customary international law. Basically, just thinking outside the box. That's it. Well, thank you very much. Go ahead, Nick. No, I wasn't, I wasn't trying. I think you should ask. No. I'll ask. <laughs> so this is very interesting. In particular, I thought it was very interesting that you said, I, I can't say I'm convinced, and I'll tell you why. Because when we're talking about interpretation of custom, it's not the fact that it's unwritten. Um, because whatever you put in, in any sort of terms, like you will have to somehow put it into words. Mm -hmm. the customary rule, yeah. and that's the same as writing it, it doesn't matter. Um, the, the problem that I find is what, that, you, that you, the distinction you seem to draw between determining the existence of custom and the interpretation of the customary rule thus determined to a specific set of facts basically actually takes place at the very, in one instance. So if we're talking about a court, the court will have a set of facts before it. 
So in seeking to determine the existence of a customary rule to apply to these facts, in that same step, we'll have the rule that it's going to set out will be with a view to applying to this particular set of facts. So the determination and the interpretation basically mesh into each other. The court will determine and interpret the rule in that way. If we're talking about a rule that is not, whose existence is not actually determined by a court, this will be, de this will be said to exist other, either because it has been determined by a court to exist in a previous instance, or because of an argument that a particular text actually reflects customary international law, in which case you're just basically interpreting a text, which is pretty much the same as interpreting a treaty. So my question is, why go through this whole, whole elaborate sort of analysis, which, while making sense, doesn't necessarily reflect reality. I mean, we've, we seem to have worked just fine for, I don't know, 200 years without actually having rules on the interpretation of customs. So that, whereas for treaties, we needed to come up with something, which means that it may, you know, that the whole, this whole thing may not serve a purpose. Yeah? Yeah, thanks. Uh, should we take more questions or answer? Yeah. Okay. So, Antonius, we will have a, a continuance of our discussions. How, how many years ago it was? In the end, 15 years ago? 15 years ago. Uh, we're getting old. Okay. So. We had a very poor childhood. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, with respect to, to the comments uh, that it might make sense, although you're not persuaded, uh, but we're doing just fine. And that is my point, exactly. Uh, we're not doing fine. Um, first of all, um, what I'm suggesting is basically taking the, the basic precepts and reaching a certain conclusion. That's why I started with that it makes sense. If, it's, uh, if we think that we have a system of law, then we have certain axioms, and then we draw conclusions from those axioms. If they lead us to an absurd result, that, that means that we need to go back to the drawing board with respect to one of the first ones. And that's why I'm led to interpretation of customary international law, because it doesn't make sense otherwise. Otherwise, we're talking then about judges making law as they see, they see fit, uh, or assertion, or just making it up as we go, which is fine, uh, but then we're not talking about a system. So again, it depends on where you start from the discussion. If you don't accept the existence of a system that follows certain rules and that we can follow those rules, then we start from two different uh, basic axioms. And that's why we reach different conclusion. As to the comment that... Um, so you think that most international lawyers, having operated for 200 years without roots of interpretation of... of of custom yeah. starts from the axiom that international law is not a system. No, no. I'm saying that uh, we haven't thought of it or we've thought of it, but we haven't engaged in, in the debate about it. The same thing about uh, rules of interpretation of treaties. You say that um, we have accepted them. There are many uh, academics that uh, believe that, well, and even in the BCLT, they were discussing whether we could have rules of interpretation, whether they were... Uh, rules as legal rules or rules of logic or principles or whatever. But nonetheless, now we have them in the BCLT and the system actually tends to work a little bit better because now you have a set of rules and some 
guidelines through which the legal argumentation, the legal analysis uh, functions. As to, again, I have to return to the we're doing fine. Uh, I, I have a problem with that because you could say that for many things. I mean, you did fine with the Newtonian mechanics, uh, but it was not correct. You had to have uh, theory of relativity in order to properly explain certain facts. But law is not physics, though. No, but that is a problem. If you think of it as a system, that's why I'm saying that the, it all boils down to whether you think there is a system where you can reach certain conclusions from certain basic axioms, or there is nothing and we just everybody's uh, in love with the sound of their own voice. And you say whatever you want. I'm saying that I do believe that it is a system. And I do believe that based on uh, the rules that we've set for ourselves, basically you end up with the conclusion that you need to interpret customer international law. And I find that also uh, in the sense that Judges, authors tend to be drawn to this idea of interpretation of customary international law almost instinctively. They, they can't avoid it because otherwise it doesn't work properly. Um, I have a question. Yeah, so to follow up on that, I do, I do agree that, I, I don't agree that everything is fine. There is a lot of debate, for example, about cases of the ICTY and the process of finding custom in this actual period. And I would also like to follow up on, on, on so, so okay, so if, if as Antonio says, um, deduction, induction and deduction are merged in the process of, um, of uh, finding the custom, um, then it means that the actual rules of custom that are, are given to us by the judges are in, interpreted rules and so in this case couldn't we say that I mean I find this interesting because it would mean that the actual customary rules we have now are not maybe the, the rule rules that are interpreted rules and so if we take I mean I think you want to write a different on reverse engineering already interpreted customary rules handed down by courts. <laughs> but just, if, if we take the, so the deduction step, deduction step, if we take it backwards, and, and it means that, I mean, it could make, it could make sense. What do you mean if, if I take the... It could make sense to, for example, some certain incoherences of, of, of the findings of judges in the ICTY, for example. Some people say that the customary law found in these cases is not really the proper a proper reflection of customary international law. Yeah, exactly. But that's it was it was including this deduction set, and therefore I mean there should be like a reflection on what they actually said and what the customary law is. It doesn't mean that they uh, didn't find customary international law, but that what isn't. Just to uh, to make sure that I got the question correct, you're saying that if, if they use the deduction process, the rules of interpretation, then somebody could argue that this is not, not the proper process, therefore what you've said is completely wrong. Yes or no? Yeah, 
Okay. Um, but in that case, uh, then your uh, hypothesis is that it's only state practice and opinion of yours. Right? Because if you completely discard the deductive process, then you're stuck with the inductive process alone. Well, it's also to the extent that it's really an inductive process. I mean, maybe, you know, in some, in some sort of perfect world, it would Let's be an inductive process. Daniel? Yeah, I, actually, my question related to both of those points, like Coral said, and it kind of goes to the fact that when the court is determining and applying customer rule, it is looking at a specific set of facts and a specific case. Yeah. So, to me, kind of, you know, this deduction phase presumes that it's, there is some general rule which we apply to a particular case. Yep. But let's say, for example, the arrest warrant case where the court had to decide where the foreign minister were in German immunity, just as prime ministers of court heads of state are seen to do in customary international law. Now, was the court really interpreting any rule of customary law in that case, or it, was it looking at whether there is this customary rule? The so in that, in that sense, I, I see no deduction there. I see induction. And although I do see that, so what I mean, well, the court was being theological in that case, mm -hmm. and it was criticized for not giving us, you know, great state practice and news. But what I would say, it's it's not theologically interpreting the existing rules of customary international law. Uh, but two things on that. Okay. First of all, um, if you're talking about teleological lawmaking, then no, 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 no. Well, it's useful for me. <laughs> so the, the point there is that um, then you need to, again, go back to the drawing board because state practice and opinion yours is not helping you out there. You need to rethink on how <laughs> customary international law is formed. I'm fine with that if you change the rules. But the way that yes, it would change the rules. But the way that the ILC is going, it's going very traditional. State practice and opinion euros. So you have a problem with that. The other issue is that let's say even if we take the arrest warrant case, and let's say that it says what you say and we view it that way. The problem is that from an argument perspective, you're fighting a losing side. The reason is because you're trying to prove a negative. I'm trying to prove that customer international law can be interpreted. I only need to prove it once. You have to demolish each and every case. That's why I'm saying it's, it's, it's very difficult to argue against it from, from a philosophical and argumentative perspective, I'm saying. If you, even if you manage to persuade me for the arrest warrant case, then what do you have to say about the EC Biotech case? What do you have to say about the North Sea Continental Shelf case? I'm just trying to suggest that the customer international law can be interpreted. I'm trying to prove a positive. I only need one. I only need one black swan to prove that not all swans are white. Yeah? No. Well, first of all, with respect to treaties, you might find some people arguing that uh, the, the inclaris non interpretatio. I, I absolutely abhor that, uh, that claim because there's nothing clear. Um, 
McDougall, I think, uh, yeah, I think in the uh, Vienna conference on the Law of Truth, he said this is the best way to demolish that. He said, this is an obscurantist tautology. Fantastic. Um, with respect to customary international law, um, I would say that either you end up with a possible, with the situation that if you have never dealt with this customary international law, it's a new rule. You never dealt with it at all. In that case, you might get away with practice and opinion juris, and if you're even lucky, uh, you might be able, that practice and opinion juris, to be able directly to apply to the facts of the case. That probably would be a very small, very slim chance of that happening. In that case, what would happen in the courts and tribunals, and again, this is where uh, we disagree with Antonis, that, well, maybe we agree. I don't know. We're very quantum on that point. Um, that at that point, the, the determination of the existence of the rule would merge in the decision-making process with the interpretation. They, they wouldn't clarify it. It would probably seem, unless you had a particular situation where they mentioned the teleology of the rule, then you could jump on that one. But that's why I said, with respect to the intention of the parties, it would be difficult to distinguish. So in the scenario that you're describing, the first time that the rule has ever been mentioned, and you're trying to establish that it is customary international law, the whole analysis would be on state practice and opinion juris. It should be also about interpretation, because to me it doesn't make sense that the rule would apply to that particular case, but the judges probably wouldn't follow that way. But that's the problem with interpretation, not just of customer international law, of treaties. Well, well, of anything. Treaty is very finite, isn't it? It's fairly finite because you've got words, you know, and words can only have a certain number of finite meanings. Yeah, but then when it comes to practice and interaction between states, who, <coughs> who, who, I suppose it's. Not necessarily. I, I would disagree with that because. Uh, I don't know, which treaty can I use? I mean, any treaty that says reasonable measures. You can, it is open. I mean, yes, there might be, uh, the, the degree of uncertainty might be narrower or uh, wider, but the same thing you could say with customary international law, you can have a very uh, narrow uh, degree, uh, 12 nautical miles, customary international law. I don't see that being much of a difference. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I think your, your problem is more with the, uh, the unquantifiable variable, not so much of the rule, but of the judges themselves. But that's a different thing. That's the judge's issue, not uh, an issue of law itself. Yes, but the, the problem is, uh, I, I personally think that uh, application, uh, and I have, uh, there are people who disagree, but I personally think that interpretation, and I'm a little bit biased on that one, uh, interpretation is everything. Uh, application is a mechanical uh, thing uh, at the very end. Um, 
but you'd be surprised that there are a lot of authors that are very vehement uh, in the negation of customary international law. Can international customary international law cannot be interpreted? You have Tulia Travis who said that. You have Martin Boss who said that. Uh, simply because the the rule is vague. So thank you very much for saying that it is inherent. Yes, that's what my my point. It is inherent. It doesn't make sense that you don't interpret customary international law, but. Um, the discussion still remains on practice and opinion juris, not so much on trying to find the rules. And I think those authors maybe say that it's not necessarily customary international law because they do it in a, in a interpretation of the rules. So then they are already interpreting it. And I think that's where this whole discussion starts. Yeah, uh, not so. I distinctly remember uh, that it was just one sentence that international, customary international law cannot be interpreted. Full stop. Also, because it is an unwritten, and then there was a small analysis. But again, if if you go through the the authors, you'll see the analysis is very, very uh, finite. Uh, just one paragraph. Boss actually has the the longest one. Uh, I think about two pages long. Excellent. And on that note, please join me in welcoming Anna. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Still food back there.